Well, sadly, it hasn't quite worked out as anticipated for our Year 12 students over the last couple of years. But the Year 12 formal is a rite of passage in our culture, isn't it? A night to get all dressed up and to look back on the last 13 years of school, sharing one last sentimental night with your classmates before making the transition into adulthood. For some students, it marks liberation, the end of years of homework, wearing an uncomfortable uniform day after day, and lunchtime detentions. For others, though, it's a time of awards and recognition following years and years of hard work. Whatever the case, though, it's an important marker, isn't it? But for everyone after that Year 12 formal, there's still one last judgment to endure, the HSC exams. One last assessment, one final appraisal. And you know what, friends? The, the day a believer dies is a bit like Year 12 formal day. It marks release from this world groaning under the curse of sin the renewal of a body that's aching for an upgrade, and the end of years of labour for the Lord. But before the joy of eternal glory, there's one final examination, a time of reckoning for all believers, what the New Testament calls the judgment seat of Christ. You might recall that as we studied 1 Peter chapter 1 last term, we came across a verse that perhaps challenged some of our expectations. We read this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. And as we unpacked that verse in light of the scriptures, it became clear that whilst we're saved by faith, not works, there's, that there's nothing that we could do to ever earn our salvation. There is a sense in which God will impartially judge each of us according to the deeds done in the body. And that thought generated a, a lot of helpful discussion and reflection amongst us. Is that right? And if it is right, how have I never seen that before? And so, as I promised at the evening service that Sunday, we're going to revisit that doctrine, the doctrine of eternal rewards today. And I suspect that what you're going to find is that it's a bit like buying a car. You never notice cars of a particular colour or make until you buy one, do you? And then suddenly you start to see them everywhere. You never notice lime green Kia Carnivals until you buy one, and then suddenly every second car on the road is a lime green Kia Carnival. Well, I suspect you're going to find the same today. Once we come to understand the doctrine of eternal rewards, we begin to see it everywhere, particularly in the teaching of our Lord himself. Now, friends, let me say, if you haven't listened to that sermon on 
1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 21, from the 1st of August. I'd encourage you to, to listen to that later on, because that sermon provides a, a much fuller context for verse 17. Because, of course, to ensure that we don't misunderstand or misapply this verse. We, we need to understand it in its context. And I want to do that quickly now because I think doing so fills in a particular pothole for us. Because Peter is not suggesting here, friends, that salvation is by works. When we keep reading there in 1 Peter chapter 1, that becomes clear. Please turn there with me in your Bibles, if you will. And today, please keep your Bible open and ready in front of you. There are quite a few key passages that we're going to be unpacking together. And it would be really helpful for you to have God's word in front of you. This is 1 Peter chapter 1. We read verse 17 already. I'm going to keep reading from verse 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Peter makes clear here that our sin is paid for by the precious blood of Christ. The perfect Passover lamb, sacrificed to deliver us, to pay our debt in full, to deliver us from the wrath of God. And in that glorious divine transaction, his righteousness imputed to us. And all of this, verse 21, is based entirely on his saving work. And so the judgment that Peter writes of there in verse 17 clearly doesn't jeopardize salvation. So what is this impartial judgment of works that Peter writes about there in verse 17? That's the question we're going to be looking at today. And let me warn you or advise you in advance, today's message isn't a traditional sermon, if you like. It's, it's more of a seminar unpacking this particular doctrine. It's almost a, a systematic theology seminar where we're going to be taking different passages of Scripture and helping, helping to bring them together that we might understand this doctrine in its fullness. We're going to start, though, with probably the most fundamental question. Who does this apply to? Who's going to be judged? And the answer is pretty simple. Everyone. When Christ returns, he'll judge the living and the dead. Ruth read from Matthew 25 just a moment or two ago, and in the very next verse following our focus passage today, Jesus continues. Please turn there with me now to Matthew chapter 25. To the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 25, and I'm going to read from verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. 
all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. When Christ returns, all humanity will stand before him in judgment. The sheep, those who declared him Lord in word and in deed on his right, and the goats, those who denied him on his left. Those who repented and believed in Christ will be welcomed into his eternal kingdom, but those who did not will be condemned. As Jesus says there in verse 46, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The unrepentant consigned to the eternal punishment of hell, a place of eternal conscious punishment of the wicked. At this first judgment, that of the sheep and the goats, all believers will be declared righteous before God because of the perfect work of Christ. We have no need to fear condemnation, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As sheep, we have no need to fear punishment for our sin. Christ paid our debt in full on the cross. It is by grace you have been saved, through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Because of Christ's perfect obedience, gifted to us, Praise God, we won't be condemned, but will pass into eternal glory. But yet there remains a second judgment for believers, where we're judged for how faithfully we've lived as Christians. Judging by the response to my earlier sermon, I suspect this isn't a doctrine that we Christians consider very much, but this isn't a new doctrine. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 6 to 10 here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 from verse 6. Paul writes, Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. Verse 10 is the key for us today. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Writing to believers in Corinth here, and it's important that we recognize that, that Paul was writing to believers. He reminds them that they all, that all Christians, 
will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The word that Paul uses for the judgment seat of Christ here, sometimes called the Bema seat, that's B-E-M-A seat. That word appears elsewhere in scripture to refer to a raised platform where judgments were made. It's used to describe the place where Pilate judged Jesus and where Gallio judged Paul in Acts chapter 18. Now, both of those, Jesus and Paul, were, were negative judgments, of course. More positively, it was also used in first century Greek to describe the place where crowns were handed out to the winners of the games. And here, Paul uses it to describe the time when all believers will stand before Christ for evaluation. A time in the future, after Christ has returned, where all believers will stand before him. Martin Luther will be there. The Apostle Paul will be there. And we, if we follow Christ, will be there. Now, in order to to understand what Paul's saying here in verse 10, there's one phrase in particular that we need to unpack. And it's the word that's been translated due in English. Because that word can encompass both reward and loss. We'll receive reward, positive compensation for good deeds done as a disciple. Reward given for our heartfelt service and wise stewardship of the time and talents and resources entrusted to us. But this word due also carries the possibility of loss, potential reward forfeited as negative compensation for bad deeds. Not sin, but worthless, meaningless, pointless deeds done in the body. Faithfulness will be recompensed appropriately, but unfaithfulness will also receive what it deserves. Honour will be given where it's due, but where it's not, it'll be forfeited. Now friends, let me be clear again. Christ has covered every sin for the believer. No believer will experience punishment from Christ when he comes. But the partial loss of reward is entirely possible. This judgment isn't about punishment, but gradation of reward. Now, one thing I want you to notice here before we move on. Paul doesn't remind these Corinthian believers of this to inspire terror, but rather godly living. You know, it's a bit like motivating your kids to to clean up around the house. Laying before your kids the the goodness of a clean house, the the beauty of a floor that is devoid of toys, the the beauty of of a living room table that doesn't have junk on it, the glory of coming home and seeing everything laid out where it's meant to be. That doesn't really tend to inspire the heart of our kids, does it? But funnily enough, the reward of a Happy Meal at McDonald's seems to, seems to both inspire the heart and move the body. You know, it's, it's the same here. Paul's words aren't designed to scare us, but to motivate us. See the start of verse 9 there? So we make it 
our goal to please him. The scriptures don't give us a huge amount of information about what's to come. But what is revealed isn't designed to to merely inform us, but to move us. For these truths to inspire our faithfulness and our fruitfulness until Christ returns. And so here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we can glean that there seems to be varying degrees of reward for the believer based on how we've lived. Now to unpack this further, please turn with me to, to Matthew chapter 25. To Matthew chapter 25. Ruth read this passage for us earlier, so I'm not going to reread it in full now, but I think it would be helpful for you to have this open as we work our way through it. Now, this parable, if you read around it later, you'll see that it comes in the midst of a much larger unit where Jesus is urging us to prepare for his coming kingdom, particularly focused on how we're to live as we await his return. And here in this parable, the man going on a long journey represents Jesus. Jesus who has, as we were reminded in 1 Peter chapter 4 just a couple of weeks ago, who has entrusted his people with talents and resources to be used in his absence for the extension of his kingdom. This long absence represents the church age, the period that we're living in now where we await Christ's return. Now, These talents, you'd notice, aren't distributed equally. Each servant is allocated different talents, just as is the case with gifts in the church. Some are given many gifts, others less. But all of them have been granted by Jesus to be used for him. The point of the parable thus far isn't hard to see, is it? Christ has entrusted his church with gifts, with talents that ultimately belong to him as our master for us to use to grow his kingdom while we await his return. It's from verse 19 that our focus for today begins to emerge. Because after a long absence, the master representing Jesus returns and he calls his servants to give an account. Two of the servants have been faithful. They've used the master's resources well and have doubled what was entrusted to them. And I want you to notice that both of them receive exactly the same commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. I want you to notice that. We're going to come back to that later. Come and share your master's happiness. Now notice, friends, the Lord didn't expect a five-bag-of-gold t- five return from the one entrusted with two bags of gold. No, he expected a return proportional to what was entrusted. What matters is being faithful with what you're given. The judgment seat of Christ isn't about being compared with other believers. We'll be judged on what we've done with what God has given to us. We can't look at this parable, though, and not consider the third servant who receives a very different verdict from the master. This servant proved by his actions, in fact, to not be a servant at all. 
He buried what was given to him. He literally put it in a hole. This third man claims to be a servant of the master, but doesn't live like it. His response to the return of the master is actually quite telling. First of all, he offers an excuse, and then even accuses the master of injustice. His words and his actions show that he didn't ever really know the master at all. That's why he's condemned and punished, receiving the fate of those outside of Christ. He was a false believer, because God's grace always bears fruit. Friends, Jesus taught very clearly that whilst salvation comes through faith, not works, we will be judged by works. Let me say that again. Salvation is by faith alone, a gift granted entirely by God's grace. We see that in the parable of the generous landowner in Matthew 20, for example. That's a parable about salvation. All the workers received the same wage, whether they started working first thing in the morning or just late in the afternoon. It's the same with faith. All who repent and believe in Christ receive salvation, whether they've followed him from childhood or surrendered to him on their deathbed. All believers have a full inheritance in the heavenly kingdom. But Jesus also taught that believers would be judged according to works. And notice, Jesus taught these truths side by side without fear of apology or contradiction. Now, whilst we might worry that we're imperiling the doctrine of salvation by grace alone when we consider eternal rewards, that that doesn't seem to be a problem that Jesus had. Jesus didn't seem to see any contradiction between graciously bestowed gospel privileges and graciously promised future reward. Because when you think about it, it's all grace, isn't it? It's grace that initially brings us to Christ. It's grace that sustains us. It's grace that enables our obedience. It's grace that sees us through to glory. And it's grace that ultimately rewards our grace-enabled faithfulness. The Christian life is the story of grace from beginning to end. Let's move on to a fourth question. What might these varying degrees of reward look like? Now, to see that there will be different rewards bestowed on different believers, you don't need to look any further than the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember Jesus' words that, the end of the Beatitudes. We've looked at them a couple of times in the last few months. Jesus said, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Speaking of those who endure persecution. Great is their reward. But to those who practice their righteousness in front of others. At the start of chapter 6, he warns, If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Their only reward is what comes on this earth, the acclaim of man. Do you see, one receives great reward, the other forfeits heavenly reward. Now, the scriptures don't give us a precise definition of what these heavenly rewards will look like, which is 
Perhaps why you don't often hear sermons on topics like this. But one thing we do see as we read what the New Testament has to say about rewards is that they're often referred to as crowns, as crowns. And, you know, there's a good reason for that. Because in the first century Roman world, crowns were coveted. Some were golden, like the sought-after walled crown. That was awarded to the first soldier who would traverse the wall of a conquered city and plant the Roman flag there. Most were wreaths, similar to what we might hang on our doors at Christmas time. But you see, it wasn't the, the actual crown that was the real reward, but the benefits and the honour and the fame that came with it. Some crowns came with the gift of land. Other crowns came with a title. Others came with prized seats at the games. You know, you had box seats to watch the athletics. Others came with the ever-popular tax exemption. And you see, when we when we understand this first century context, I think we better understand the significance of the language used by the New Testament writers. Because when they spoke of crowns, the benefits, the value, the rewards and responsibilities attached to them were understood. And I think in Matthew chapter 19, we get a picture of what these benefits and responsibilities might look like. Please Turn there with me in your Bible now. This is our last focus passage for today. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. And here in, I'm going to read from verse 27. But here in this passage, Jesus is in conversation with the disciples about the challenges of the rich entering the kingdom. From verse 27, Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you, what then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Friends, I want you to notice that when Peter asks Jesus about rewards in heaven, Jesus doesn't dismiss his question as ridiculous. He doesn't correct him and say, no, Peter, all believers are going to have equal rewards. No, Jesus explicitly promises that the 12 apostles will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And here I think we see something really important. The reward for the apostles is increased responsibility in eternity. We see the same elsewhere in the Gospels when the mother of James and John asks for her sons to have places of highest prominence in Jesus' kingdom. Notice again, Jesus doesn't say that, no, those places don't exist because everyone's equal. No, rather he says, no, 
Those places exist, but they're reserved for those determined by the Father. And once again, please notice, reward is responsibility in the kingdom. We saw the same in Matthew 25, didn't we? The servants were rewarded proportionally with what? It was increased responsibility, wasn't it? The two faithful servants were given increased responsibility, even though at the end it wasn't equal responsibility. Bringing all of these passages together, friends, is why it's my personal view that the reward that believers have in eternity is the job will be given to do. Our reward in glory is the the sphere of responsibility, the, the delegated authority conferred on us as believers by our Lord. In the movie Gladiator, I know it's a bit old now, maybe you've seen it, but in the movie Gladiator, the Roman general Maximus, who's played by Russell Crowe, inspires his troops with a rousing reminder. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Now, whilst that might be a slight exaggeration when it comes to the battlefield, let me tell you, friends, it's no empty promise when it comes to the life of a believer. Faithfulness in this life does echo into eternity for servants of the Lord Jesus. And so, friends, understanding this doctrine, we need to remember that true success is not measured by a claim in this life, but Christ's evaluation in the next. Our focus shouldn't be on storing up treasures in this life, but in heaven. And there needs to be a seriousness in our lives and in our ministry as we see the most profound privilege, but equally responsibility that has been entrusted to us. May God bless us as we do this in his name and for his glory. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, we tremble before you because as we examine our hearts this day, we know that we are sinners. We depart so easily from paths of obedience. And so, our Lord, we we cling to you. We cling to Christ and his perfect sacrifice. The perfect Passover lamb who died at Calvary to pay our sin debt to you in full. We cry out for and pray for your mercy and grace. And Lord, we thank you for your grace, that it is your grace that calls us to you, that it is your grace that sustains us as we walk the narrow road, that it is your grace that will see us through to glory, and that it is your grace that will ultimately reward us in heaven. Lord, we pray that your gracious investment in us might not go uninvested. We pray that the time and the talents and the resources that you have entrusted to us, for they are yours to be used for your glory. Lord, we pray that we might not hoard them, that we might not bury them, but that we might use them for the extension of your kingdom in this world.
Help us, Lord, as your servants to labour for you with all of our might. Not that we might receive the acclaim of man, but that we one day might indeed hear Christ's affirmation. Well done, good and faithful servant. How we long for that day. Please fill us with your spirit. Please enable us by your grace. Please help us to be faithful servants of you. We pray all of this in the precious name of our Saviour. Amen.